Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is an RNZ podcast. Namihi nui and a very big welcome to the Kakapo Files from RNZ. I'm Alison Balance and we're up to episode six, Full House. We are, of course, covering the largest ever breeding season of the world's largest parrot, the flightless kakapo. The rare birds, all 147 of them, are getting a big helping hand from the kakapo recovery team from New Zealand's Department of Conservation. And we are going to get straight to the point and call up Technical Officer Daryl Eason on his mobile phone. Kia ora, Daryl. I gather you've already had quite a busy morning. It's early afternoon on Saturday the 26th of January. What have you been up to today out on Whenua Hau? Well, I slept in the tent overnight by a nest of millies, but I didn't get to look in her nest. So I came down and today we had some sperm left over from Luke that we were hoping to catch Zephyr yesterday for an artificial insemination, but we couldn't catch her because she was up a tree. So we didn't want to waste and lose that sperm, and we ran up and we caught Jean, and we've just done an artificial insemination with her. To hopefully, her eggs will be more likely to be fertile, and Luke is a really good match for Jean. And why are you doing artificial insemination? Well, kakapo, because they're a bit inbred, they have a very low fertility rate. It's only about mm, 60%. And they also have quite a few early dead embryos in that first stage of incubation, probably about 18% embryo death. So by the time hatching comes around, you're only around about 40%. So there's a huge loss of eggs. And we are trying to use artificial insemination to improve fertility and also to improve genetic makeup and prevent more inbreeding going on. Now, of course, we all know about IVF in terms of people and, you know, sperm collection. That sounds terribly straightforward if you're in a white sterile laboratory in a city, but uh, you're on an island, birds are all over the place, it's often wet, it's often muddy. Talk me through the process of what it takes to collect sperm from one bird and then artificially inseminate another bird. Well, for a start, it's reasonably physically demanding because there's always a lot of gear you have to carry. I carry a microscope with me and an inverter and some batteries so I can power it and heat it. And we carry a small fridge, just a little one for insulin syringes, as well as the gear that we need to collect the semen. Um, we have little tubes and pipettes and various equipment and the gear that we need to catch and weigh and health check the birds as well. And so most of the males are up on near the top of the island, so that's usually an hour or so from the hut, up a steep track, muddy track usually. And we have to catch the male. And if things go really well, then we can, we can normally collect his semen in five minutes. How usually. do you do that? 
we contain the bird partially in a container so I can just sit him on my lap and he can't bite me. So it's just in a large bottle, actually. Ingenious. Yeah. It has to to be a very big bottle because male kākāpō are very fat and with a bit of a towel around it as well just to keep it comfortable and keep his head a bit covered. And then I just gently massage down his back from his kidneys down to his vent on his back and underneath by his pubic bones as well. And after several strokes, and usually if the male's really relaxed, then he'll tremor his feet a little bit, and that's a really good sign. And then you can just fold the the tail up, and you can just gently squeeze and express the vent. And I've usually got two helpers with me, and if there's any semen, then they can quickly collect that directly into a pet tip. And usually, if things go really well, we might get 30 to 50 microliters. So it's a very small amount, but very concentrated. So what we had from Luke yesterday, I think there was 6 million sperm per microliter of semen. 6 million per microliter. Now, how do you work that out? Is that why you have the microscope with you? Yes. So you take the microscope and you can make an immediate assessment and you just check the motility and how well it's moving, make sure that the sperm is in good condition, that the morphology is normal, um, that they aren't bent or damaged. And then you you count them on a grid under the microscope. And I was going to say, you didn't sit there and count six million, did you? No, no. <laughs> so you, you just, you're just counting a few squares worth and, and working out the dilution and the volume that you would have put in, and you can do the math to work out the, the count. Got this precious semen sample. It's full of sperm. What next? We put it in a small vial and put it in our miniature fridge that we can carry with us and keep it at about five degrees. And that just slows it down and to stop any energy loss and just keep it calm because we don't want it to be busily, actively swimming and using all its energy. And then we, we head over to our female that we that's probably mated within the last three to seven days. So that's about the perfect timing before she starts laying eggs. And we if we're lucky, which we weren't yesterday, we went to Zepa, who was probably forty minutes walk from from Luke. We tracked her in with the radio telemetry gear and found that she was probably six metres, six or eight metres up a tree and there was no way we were going to be able to catch her because the trunk was straight. <laughs> we couldn't climb. <laughs> so kākāpō are flatless but they're pretty good at climbing trees, aren't they? Yeah, they're fantastic at climbing trees. They're very good. So that, that's always disappointing because we can't, we, we don't want to go and check the female first because quite often if you go and see her and think, oh great, she's in a perfect catching spot on the ground by the time you come back later she's probably moved and gone up a tree because she thought I don't want to be seen here so you've just got to take it as it comes and and most of the time we actually catch them but every so often one will be up the tree so this time I've just had two in a row I had Jean two days ago and Zephyr yesterday both up trees Um, but today we ran up and we 
caught Jean just as she was walking up a tree. So we had to do the climbing but managed to catch her. How many females have you done AI with then? This year is the first one with Jean. But in the past, we've just done a few birds and we've had two successful clutches fertilised with AI sperm. And so that gives us confidence that it can work and we just need to work on refining a few of the techniques and once we've got it sorted, it could be a really useful management tool to increase productivity. Now you've already mentioned and we've talked on the kakapo files before about the fact that the more times a female mates, the more likely her eggs are to be fertile. So that's obviously one reason you're doing this. Why else are you doing it? Because many of the males, because of the way that kakapo breed in their leg system, they don't pair up. So a lot of the males just miss out on mating because females are attracted to a few individuals rather than evenly spread. And a lot of the males are not represented in the next generation. So we've still got several founder males left that were found in the 1980s that have never produced offspring. If we just leave them, they never will. And our gene pool for kaka will get even lower, which means the infertility and inbreeding problems will probably get worse. So it's really important to try and do something now um, to to make sure that the health of the kakapo population, the genetic health, is, is good before it gets too big and too inbred. Now, we were in discussion on text the other day and you said there was some good news about Gulliver. Can you tell me what that news is and explain why that's significant? Gulliver mated, was it the night before last? Yes, two nights ago with two females, Ponamu, who's never mated before, and Suzanne, about two hours after Ponamu. So that was his first mating this season, um, so two in a row, so that's great. And the reason that it's a really good thing is that Gulliver is the son of the last Fjordan bird, the last South Island bird to survive. So all the rest of our birds come from Stuart Island. And so that provides some really valuable genetic resource that will help birds in the future to improve their fertility if we can incorporate his genes into the new generation. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for um, Gulliver babies. He has a brother, Sinbad. What's Sinbad been up to this breeding season? Well, so far, Sinbad has just mated with Tohu. Tohu mated with two males. But unfortunately, her two eggs were infertile. So we've taken Tohu's eggs away now and we'll give her a chance to mate again. So far, um, no other females have chosen him this year. But he's a very, very good male to collect sperm from. So um, hopefully we'll be able to use him for AI, especially in the second round of nests. Now, in terms of first-time matings on the island, I know that you're re-nesting females and like Tohu and encouraging them to go out and mate again and re-nest. But in terms of the first tranche of matings, um, how are you going with that on Whenuaho? Have you had all the females mate yet? On Whenuaho, there are two left of the 29 that haven't yet mated. So we're still waiting for Marley, who's just a young, or Tohu's sister, actually just five years old, so that'll be her first time if she decides to breed. And Hawkey. Hawkey is 
yeah, a bit later, but she's often one of the last ones to make in the breeding season. Hawkey, of course, is a very special bird because she was the first hand-read kakapo, wasn't she? That's right, yes. So, yeah, she began life back in 1992. Hawkey has yet to breed successfully. She is the oldest daughter of Zephyr, part of the Wynn dynasty that began with Nora. Hawkey is one of Zephyr's eight chicks, all fathered by Felix. Jean is an original Stewart Island bird, age unknown. She was found in 1981 and has variously spent times on Hauturu and Maud Island before ending up on Whenua Hau. She has only produced three chicks back in 2002 and so the kākāpō team is keen to get some more offspring from her. They are even more keen to get something from Luke. Luke is another old-timer and he hasn't fathered any offspring yet. Tohu and Mali, by the way, were born on Hauturu in 2014. They're just young ones, coming up to five years old. Let's get back to Daryl to find out what's happening in the outer reaches of Fiordland's dusky sound, way out on Anchor Island. On Anchor, there's 21 adult females there, and all of them have nested. All of them? So, yeah. That's excellent news. That's amazing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So that, it's not very often that we get a year when every adult female on the island nests. Actually, we haven't had that before. So that's brilliant. Now that's a bit um, of a record. I gather there's another record from Anchor Island when it comes to nests as well. Oh, yes. So I think that you might be thinking of Ra, who laid five eggs in her clutch. So what's an average size clutch, Daryl? An average is about... Probably two and a half when you average it all out, but generally it's two or three eggs. And a few times there'll be four eggs, but already anchor, I think, of the 21 nests, there were 10 clutches of three and 10 clutches of four and the one five egg clutch. So it's a big egg year. How many of those are fertile, though? I think we have 19 definite fertiles out of the anchor bird, and there's a few more, I think there's three clutches, which probably is a total of 10 eggs that haven't been checked for fertility yet. So, yeah, that's out of 75 eggs. 75 eggs, that's a lot of infertile eggs though, isn't it? I know, it's really depressing. <laughs> that's the downer, because it gets all exciting when you know that the mating's happening and then you find the nest and then you go and check the egg and I think, oh, it's another infertile one. <laughs> so that's yeah, a bit sad. And that's why it's really important to work hard towards um, finding out how to make this artificial breeding program working. Great to talk with you, Daryl. Can I have a word with Jake, who's one of the island rangers? Kia ora, I'm Jake Osborne, one of the three permanent uh, field rangers on the Kaikapo recovery team uh, working for the Department of Conservation. And I've been off and on with the team since late 2014, so this is my second breeding season uh, with the team. Now, can I just wind back a little bit, because a listener, Joe, wrote in to ask for some more details about what a bowl is, B-O-W-L, by the way, and, and I'll get you to describe the look and function of a track and bowl system for her. So, yeah, all of the uh, breeding age males that seem keen uh, will build a track and bowl, or they might steal one from another bird if they're feeling quite competitive. And the bowls are generally on high points around the island, um, but they can look quite different. Um, there's a few sort of different sort of styles. Often, though, they are sort of a shallow depression, 
about a half a metre across um, that they've excavated out and grubbed away all of the plants nearby, anything that would get in the way of a female approaching them. And then quite often they build them next to our tracks so they don't have to really do much work on the tracks. But some of them build them off more in the bush and so they clear sort of one to maybe three or four pathways to the bowl probably so that the females can get there quite easily. They're pretty house-proud about these track and bowls, aren't they? They put quite a bit of effort into them. Yeah, yeah, they'll spend months um, digging away and um, chipping away at even quite large trees. They'll just slowly chew them until they die and, and fall down over a number of years, really. Males sit on the top of the island booming and chinging and doing their best to impress the females who then come wandering along these tracks to the bowls and they, the birds mate. How do you rangers know that the birds have mated and how do you know who they've mated with? As you probably know, every cockatoo wears a transmitter on their back and the males in particular wear a transmitter that we call a checkmate and in it it has a sort of motion sensor and it detects when the male has undergone a period of vigorous activity and while it's doing that it looks for another transmitter nearby and if there is a, a female nearby uh, it records that as a mating event and then we have a series of devices placed around the hill that check in with those transmitters every night and see if they have any detected mating those devices then transmit that back to the hut for us to check on in the morning. Now these smart transmitters they're not only telling you who's mating with who and the fact that they are mating based on the activity. They also rate it, don't they? Yes, they give us a quality score based on how vigorous both the male and the female are moving during the mating event. I love that. Yes, that was a really good mating. Oh no, that one wasn't quite so good. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, really quite good. Brilliant. Now let's catch up with some of the stuff that's going on on Whenua Hau. By the way, what's Pearl up to? In the last episode we... We'd heard that she'd mated with Boss on the 18th of December. We know that nest failed, but within three days she'd mated with Boss again and was already nesting. Where's she at now? So, yeah, she's sitting tight on her second nest, uh, not too far from where her first one was for the year. I was up there a few nights ago and saw her on one egg. So we don't know whether she's laid any more yet? Yeah, we're not sure on that. Um, I'm sure someone will be out to check again soon and check the fertility on those eggs. Now, last week on the podcast, it was early days, just four nests and four eggs. So how many nests have you got now and how many eggs? On Whenuaho, we have 18 confirmed nests, if we count uh, Pearl's second. And only 35 eggs uh, seen at this point, but lots more nests to check. So that's keeping you pretty busy out on the hill. Yes, very busy around here. Uh, some pretty big days in the league. Now, have you been spending time at nests at night? And if you have, tell me a little bit about what it's like being up there at night and who you've been hanging out with. Yeah, so I've, like I said, spent some time at Pearls. Uh, I've also spent some time at Esperance's nest and Rakiura's nest. So at Rakiura's nest the other night, I candled her eggs for the first time and found that at least the first one was fertile, and it's now back down here at, in the portacom being incubated. And at Esperance's nest, I brought in her second two eggs. She's laid four eggs this season, and closed 
we've closed that nest down now in the hopes that she'll remate. And yeah, being out on the on the hill on the island at night, really quite cool. Um, the air is just full of seabirds, and there's just a constant sort of background drone of, of seabirds in their burrows, and then hundreds and hundreds of calling ones in the air. You can hear the air off their wings as they're swooshing just over the trees. And quite often you'll catch glimpses of bats flying through your um, torchlight, and there's loads of insect life around. Um, it's really, really quite cool. That sounds absolutely wonderful. In terms of bringing these precious fertile eggs back down to the hut, talk us through what that's like, because I'm imagining it must be pretty nerve-wracking walking in the dark in that dense bush. Yeah, it can be. I actually get a bit more nervous when I'm pulling the eggs out of the nest uh, with a tea strainer on a, on a ski pole. Ah, that then, sounds very ingenious. <laughs> yeah, it's worked for a very long time, and why, why change? But then, so once we pull them out of the nest, which in some nests we can just do by hand, but others we have to scoop them out. We then pack them into a polystyrene box uh, that we've pre-warmed with a, with a hand warmer and some cotton wool, seal that up and um, strap it to our hand so we can't drop it, and then just walk very carefully back to the hut by torchlight. Do you have to keep it up the right way? Yes, got to keep it up the right way and not knock it around too much, so... Coming down those steep bits of track, uh, sometimes it's good to have a second person to sort of hand it off to as you go down some of the big steps. Now, these eggs that you're bringing back down to the what you call the porticon, where you've got the incubators, how many eggs have you got down there at the moment? Uh, there's 10 currently in the incubators. And they're just being kept warm, being turned the way they need to be turned. Um, and the incubators do that all automatically, don't they? Yeah, so we can set uh, the rate at which they're turned and the temperature and the humidity of each incubator and each egg will get um, a certain temperature and humidity that will uh, keep that egg on the right track um, for good incubation. Now, have you been having nice weather to make all this a bit easier or what's the weather been like? No, it's been very windy and quite wet for the last week or so, um, which... I've also been doing the sort of camp logistics role, which has been making getting flights out here very difficult. Thanks, Jake. Now, Whenua Ho is a small, uninhabited island, and no, it doesn't have an airport. You either land a helicopter on the helipad, or you can land a small plane on the beach at low tide, soft sand and crosswinds permitting. That's it for the Kakapo Files this week. I'm Alison Balance, and this was episode six recorded on the 26th of January 2019. I called it Full House to mark the fact that 48 out of 50 kākāpō females have mated so far this year, and that number is a record. You can find us at rnz.co.nz slash kākāpō. You can also subscribe to us as a podcast. RNZ Kākāpō Files in all the usual places. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public. If you can, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review us to help other nature fans find the podcast. And of course, please tell your friends all about us. To find out more about Doc's Kākāpō Recovery Programme, look out for them on Facebook and Instagram. Kākāpō scientist Andrew Digby and me, Alison Balance, we're on Twitter. I'll be back soon with lots more breaking news about the world's favourite parrot. Until then, thanks heaps for listening. Bye for now.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.